G'day, and thanks for tuning in to the Outpost Church podcast. We are currently in a series focused on the book of Romans. Our hope through this time is that we will all push into God through what he says to us through this letter. We're coming from the perspective of Romans chapter 15, verse 14, where Paul says, My brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points. So there are some incredible things that are true about us, all because of what God has done for us in Christ. But we need regular reminding in order to live up to this reality. So let's be reminded together, continually reminded. And this particular three-week series is called Obligated. And it looks at the three times that word obligated appears in this letter. What are we obligated to and what are we not? Let's dive in. You guys can all grab a Bible. So we've got some Bibles down here. If you didn't bring your own, feel free to use phone, Bible, whatever. But just strongly encourage you to open up to Romans. And we are going to be looking into Romans 15. Um, but we're going to take a little while to get there. I do want to give a shout out to Emily. That's the second time that I've done that activation. Um, and easily the best. So the first time that I did it, none of us knew that we were doing that activation, um, but it was this uh, fellow teacher of mine up in Darwin um, called Jono, and it was Jono and I on staff who were active in our Christian faith. It was a Lutheran school, um, and the other teachers there were happy to say what needed to be said, but uh, certainly weren't active in their faith. Um, and Jono was on for morning devotions this one week, and he's kicks it off with just like, I've just got to be real. So be real with my gifts, and one of my gifts is prophecy. Uh, So Carly, you're first. Like Carly has no Christian background at all. And he's like, just got this word for you. Like you are like the apostle Peter. Now Peter, like he just blurted out whatever was on his mind. He said the wrong thing all the time. He then went on to say a whole bunch of good things about Peter and good things about Carly She didn't hear any of them because all she heard was the start about blabbing out whatever was on his mind and going there. Anyway, so um, this was way better. So thank you, Emily. (laughs) Just want to encourage you uh, in that. Um, Anyone here had their wisdom teeth out? Not that many. Wow. So I had my wisdom teeth out a little while back and I had two big surprises. So the first big surprise was when I walked in Um, And the surgeon introduced me to the student surgeon. (laughs) I was like, oh. But he quickly reassured me that the student surgeon wouldn't be the one that's actually uh, doing it. But the second surprise was that it was probably worse that the student wasn't doing the surgery because what happened was every... I was awake for having the four removed. The surgeon who'd been doing it for some time saw it as a wonderful teaching opportunity to give a blow by blow of every single thing that he was doing describing it so as he's like you know you slice through this you lift up this flap i'm like that flap is my gum and then this bone's in the way that's why i've got to drill through it i'm like i don't need to hear all this 
Has anyone ever had a glimpse, like when you're lying down in the dentist chair and you can see the reflection of your mouth? And like, there's some things you don't want to see. There's some things you don't want to be aware of and you suddenly become just so aware of how vulnerable you are because of what's going on. Um, I had a, a vulnerable moment, a vulnerable hairdressing moment. Um, you might say this is funny because I don't have much hair, but um, I tend to do the number zero. So just have the clippers with no attachment on there and you know, get rid of the vast majority of what is there. Um, and I don't let Christy um, shave my head anymore because it is one of the funniest things in the world to her when she's cutting my hair. So she's just cracking up laughing as she's doing it. And you cannot keep a steady hand when you're cracking up laughing. I also had Dave. It's interesting that Christy and Dave are the two that are out there leading the kids now and don't get to hear this. But Dave um, Gilson was shaving my head. And I was like, pressing a bit hard there, Dave. I was like, no, 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 just man up, Shane. You'll be okay. Until, like, this may be an exaggeration. I don't know for sure whether the clippers actually conked out, but in my mind they did. It's just like, like a divot in my head. Like he pressed in enough to draw blood and I think that he actually stopped the clippers by pushing them into my head. There are moments that we feel vulnerable. There are a couple of mine. There are moments, I'm sure, that you can attest to as well, where you have been physically vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable, and some of those where you wish it never happened. The classic is that you tell someone and you tell them what you re regret later on. You actually thought you could trust them. It turns out you couldn't quite entrust them with what you entrusted them with. We are going to have a look at something that talks about our own vulnerability, and it is a very famous passage and it does speak of worship, as Beth pointed out. We are looking at, uh, for our discipleship training week, all he asks is everything. We were considering calling it worship, but we wanted to not have people think that we're going to be singing songs all day. Also, not just focused on those who would lead others in musical worship. Um, but let's open up to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So firstly, we are told to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice is an oxymoron. A sacrifice is something that dies. But we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. I once read in a Bible commentary that the problem with living sacrifices is that they can crawl off the altar. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? If you're a sacrifice, you are completely done away with you were dealt with, but you have completely submitted to someone else. It's not just allowing them to cut your hair or work on your teeth, but it's, you're gone, you're dead. A living sacrifice, one that continues to live, 
is someone who has given over their life to do the bidding of another. Living sacrifice. That you're not living for yourself, but you're living for somebody else. And in this case, of course, it is this one who has mercy. It is interesting that, this is the second part of this, it's interesting that the reason we are told to present our bodies as a living sacrifice is not what it says in verse 36 of chapter 11. So the immediate verse before this one says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It doesn't say, therefore, brothers and sisters, submit. In view of his majesty, submit. Like he is the one that everything has come from. He's the reason everything exists. He's the ultimate purpose. He's the means by which it happens. But it's not any of those things that Paul points to in saying this is the reason why you should offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And should is not strong enough. I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It is interesting the way that there's a plural and there's a singular. I urge you, to present your bodies, plural, all of you, present your individual bodies as a singular living sacrifice. We together participate as this sacrifice to the Lord. But it is his mercy, it is his mercy that is the reason why we would do that. Interesting. The word mercy appears a whole bunch of times in the preceding chapters. Who here has recently read Romans chapter 9 and or Romans chapter 11? So a fair few of us recently read those chapters. There's some tough stuff in those chapters. But those chapters also contain 10 in the um, CSB that I'm reading from, 10 references to the word mercy. Ten references to the word mercy. But there's some stuff in there that's, that's challenging for us in that. And I just want to take a little bit of time to have a look at God's mercy. And we're going to do it in these passages that perhaps cause us potentially to question God's mercy. So let's have a look in chapter 9. So we're going to open up to chapter 9 and we will start at verse number 14. or even 15. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's a pretty good start. I will show mer- I'm just going to show mercy whoever I want to show mercy to. I'm going to show compassion on whoever I want to show compassion to. So there, cop that. They're pretty similar things, mercy and compassion. The thing about a distinction between mercy and compassion is that to show mercy would indicate that you would be inclined to do otherwise. Maybe they deserve something different. Because the definition that's often given for mercy includes the word compassion. Right? So compassion could be a complete stranger, and then you're having compassion on them. Mercy could be someone who deserves what they're getting, or they owe you a lot, that sort of thing. But... He has mercy, he has compassion. No real problems there. 
Next verse. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Again, no problem there. We just keep on reading, don't we? It's fine. No one has any problems with God hardening who he wants to harden. We can just move on and go to the next thing. It starts the same. He has mercy on whom he has mercy, but then he says he hardens whom he wants to harden. Let's continue reading. You'll then say to me, therefore, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honour and another for dishonour? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction. And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So this passage is dominated by mercy. There are six mentions of mercy, but it's the two mentions of hardening and the one mention of objects of wrath that tend to leap out at us from the page. A bit like how for uh, my colleague Carly, she only heard the introduction, the only the start of what Jono had to tell her because it was confronting and offensive. And these things can be what sticks in our mind. We read this whole chapter and we miss the mercy because these other parts are what seem to, to scream at us. 21st century Australians also have a problem with the argument that is given from verse 19. Any argument that starts with, who are you, a mere human, to talk back to God? We struggle with that kind of a, an argument. It's kind of like, who are you? Like, who am I? Who are you to put me in my place? It challenges a lot about what is important to our culture. Do we doubt God's right to do what God wants to do? Do we doubt that we deserve God's wrath? And that is a very important point for us just to sit with for a minute. If you were to put yourself in God's shoes and say you just made something absolutely amazing, say you make a cake and it is the most delicious, amazing cake and then that cake just gets up and slaps you in the face, what are you going to do with that cake? <laughs> exactly right. You're going to eat that cake. 
if you made the most amazing Lego creation and it's just taken you weeks to make this thing and it slapped you in the face, what are you going to do? You're going to deal with that. If we create something, we expect that it is going to serve us. It is going to do something for us. God has made us. God should have an expectation that we will honour him, that we will serve him. And if we look throughout all of history, the expectation of most cultures, most of the time, is that there are gods and they should be served. Our culture is different. We are very entitled. And so this sort of stuff just messes with us big time. But the reality that God can do whatever the heck God wants to do is true. Of course he can. He's God. He made everything. He either made it directly or indirectly. If he didn't make it, he made the things to enable someone else that he also made to be able to make it. He made everything. He has a right to everything. He has a right to us. And yet, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he has compassion on whom he wants to have compassion. I deserve death. I have made so many decisions that are just about me. Me, 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 me. Selfishness. And yet, I can rightly have an expectation to boldly approach God and his throne in my time of need and expect that he will serve me. Whoa. I have no right to that except that he's told me that I have a right to that. And I can expect that. Anything that God chooses to do for us is an act of grace. He is merciful and he is gracious. But there are still some things in here that it's worth addressing and having a look at. So in this instance, let's deal with the hardening thing first. So Pharaoh is the one who is hardened in here. There's a more generic I will have mercy on whom I want to have mercy and I'll harden whom I want to harden. There's only one actual case of someone being hardened as is referenced in here and it's Pharaoh. And fortunately, we have the narrative of this as well. And we know that Pharaoh, when he's confronted by Moses initially, he's like, who is this Lord? Like, I don't know him. I don't recognize him. And we have time and again that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. It also tells us that the Lord hardened his heart. There seems to be this participation by Pharaoh in the hardening. It seemed to be that Pharaoh had decided and that God, I don't know how this works. I don't know the nuance of this, but Pharaoh was perfectly capable of hardening his own heart. And he was also involved in the hardening of his heart. If we go back to the very start of Romans, it talks about God giving them over to their desires. It mentions it in verse 24 and 26 of chapter 1. He gave them over to the desires of their heart. 
They wanted to do it, and he said, you can do it. He confirmed what their desire was. And it is part of God's graciousness that he doesn't force us to do what we don't want to do. He knows the consequences. He doesn't want us to be in that space. He graciously gives us a way out as well. So Pharaoh had enslaved about a million Jews, put them in forced labor, and demanded that they abandon their infants. So there's a fair bit going on here. This is all the stuff before Moses comes into it. There's this reality for us as well that we often skip over when it comes to our worship songs, when it comes to the sermons we choose to listen to and the Bible passages we choose to read, is that we are to submit to God. Even what I read out before about being a living sacrifice, it is out there enough to be something that we don't really know what it means and we can go, yes, I'm going to be a living sacrifice. But in that moment when we have to lay down our own will and submit to what God wants rather than what we want, we have to put someone else's needs above our own needs. It's like, oh, maybe not that. We must submit. And Pharaoh was required to submit to God as well. And he's like, I am not submitting to someone else. Who is this Lord? I don't recognize him. Don't acknowledge him. Don't know him. We have to believe and submit. But part of the question that comes up for us is, all right, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for everyone else? Is God going to just randomly harden my heart? Is he going to randomly harden someone else's heart? In chapter 10, so if you want to flick over to to chapter 10, we have from verse 11. I could read from a bit earlier, but let's just go from verse 11. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So for the Jews, there's two categories of people. There's them and there's everyone else, Jews and the Gentiles. So the whole world is included in this. There is no distinction. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The only thing that's required is that we believe and that we submit to him. It's not just, I, yeah, I believe you exist, that we would actually submit to him. All right, let's, let's keep going. I'm going to move through reasonably quickly and I would love to sit with you over dinner if there's stuff that we've started on and you're like i don't get this or can we go over that again um very happy to have bibles open over dinner and let's like look into this stuff more uh, i'm really excited that we are reading through all of romans and we're preaching on little bits of it um, but i want us to be a people who are continually going back to the scriptures and one thing that happens quite a bit um, is that people will take a really tricky passage And then you'll hear that passage, and then you'll hear the explanation of the passage, but then you never go back to that tricky passage to make sure that it is actually still true. 
It's kind of like you get stirred up because you hear this thing that's challenging. Then you go away from the actual scripture and you just talk about someone's theory on it and you feel settled enough, but you never go back to the scripture as well. I want you to go back to the scripture. If this stuff has unsettled you, go back to it and see if this does actually add up and this is an appropriate way to, to handle it. Um, chapter 11 also has some stuff that's, that's really challenging. So from um, verse 7, what then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. doesn't mention how they were hardened. just says that they were. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. Again, that's fine. We'll just move on. Um, so back to chapter 12, verse... No, I'm joking. If we just read that one passage, it seems like God has placed a curse on this people and they will never be able to receive what he has. But you read the following verses. So... Verse 11, I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? I'll talk more about the purpose of that passage in a minute, but let's just have a look at some of those phrases that are used so in verse 11 it says they've stumbled so verse 8 9 10 it seems that god has done something to them verse 11 says they've stumbled okay if you've stumbled it's probably more your responsibility and then if you any doubt about that later in the verse it mentions by their transgression so they've transgressed which is another word for sin essentially they have done the wrong thing we continue on, verse 12. Now it mentions their transgression again and their failure. So as we read more, and again, we have the narrative of the people of Israel like we have the narrative of Pharaoh. What did God do for the people of Israel? They were the ones who were rescued out of Egypt. They were the ones who were given a law so they would know how to live in community and live before God. They were the ones who continually had prophets that came to them to bring them back to God. And what was the issue? It was that they kept prostituting themselves before other gods. It was that they said one thing and did another. When the law was read out to them, they agreed with it. They were like, yes, we would do everything written in the law. And it was not long before they did everything but what was written in the law. The issue was not that God had cursed them. The issue was that they were disobedient and they kept running away from him. And there is this thing of like where uh, free will and God's sovereignty, like there is this area where it's like, I don't understand how all that works. But let's not point a finger at God. Let's not just take this one passage and go, oh, we can't trust you. This whole passage is about the wonder and magnificence of how salvation is opened up to the Gentiles. 
chapters 9, 10 and 11, continuing through, we see it in chapter 15 as well, the wonder. Suddenly, this group that were unclean are welcomed in. And you've got this metaphor of the olive tree and you've got the natural branches that are growing out of the olive tree who are the people of Israel. It says they're broken off because of their unbelief. And then you have the wild olive tree who are the Gentiles. They are grafted in. So they become part of the same tree, part of God's family. But then he warns those. He starts speaking to the Gentiles saying, don't start boasting that other branches were ripped off and you were put in. It is God's kindness that brought you in and you will stay in if you remain in his kindness. Might as well go there. So this is um, chapter 11, verse 22. Chapter 11, verse 22. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if speaking of the Jews, if they do not remain in unbelief. It's an interesting thing. He doesn't say, if they start believing again, they'll be back. If they don't, it's only double, triple, negative. If they don't remain in unbelief. In other words, if they start believing again, they will be grafted back in. It's a pretty big tree. You've got those that have been cut off by their own unbelief. It's what they have done that has caused them to be out. You've got these ones that is like ridiculous for the Gentiles to be included. They've been grafted in and those that are currently out are welcomed back in. The whole purpose of these few chapters is not talking about how God has blocked people from coming in. It's how he's opened the door. He is a merciful God. There's a, another couple of things that could be um, things people get tripped up on. So let's go uh, with verse 30. So a couple more mentions of the word mercy. Verse 30 of chapter 11. As you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so speaking to the, Jew, the Gentiles about the Jews, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. Remember, mercy is getting what we need, not what we deserve. They've received mercy, you've received mercy, everyone receives mercy, and then a really confusing statement to wrap things up. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that, he may have, so that he may have mercy on all. What does that mean? He has imprisoned all in disobedience. So Eugene Peterson, he wrote the message to paraphrase. He puts here, um, everyone has experienced being an outsider and they then get to experience what it's like to be brought back in. He's imprisoned all in disobedience. Everyone was born in sin. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person. Everyone should be on the outside, but his mercy has brought us in. But the fact that God has imprisoned us, I don't understand 
this particular verse and like why it says he has imprisoned us all. I've got some ideas of how it can work, um, but I understand why Paul then goes on to say what he says next. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Certainly not me. Or who has been his counselor? Certainly not me. And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? Certainly not me. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, this one who has brought us all together, and it is not just that all of us individually have this relationship with God. It's not that he's made this whole orchard full of different trees. He has one tree and he's brought us all together into that tree. And we see that that is his focus as we move on into chapter 12. One body, many gifts, one body. And it is not that suddenly someone else is part of your body. It's not that I see you down there, little toe. I'm going to protect you. You get to be part of my body. No, no, we are all part of Jesus' body. We all have different roles and different functions. He is the head. It's his body that we are a part of. As ones who have received mercy, it is on us to give mercy. Let's read some ways that we do that. Let's, we'll read verse 3 of Romans 12. And this is just for fun. I can't, I'm looking at Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and I'm not going to read verse 2. I'll leave that for you guys. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I am going to read verse 2. It's such a good verse. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. His will is that we would live out of the reality of being his body, that we would treat each other with that kind of dignity, that kind of honor. Like, obviously, people commit self-harm all the time. But anyone who is in a healthy space looks after their body. Any healthy body wants every part of that body to thrive and do well. We are a healthy body who wants to thrive. We have the ultimate head and he is gracious. He has called us in and we get to be part of this body. Verse 6, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy... Use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching in teaching, if exhorting in exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Verse 9. 
Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. So we've got the language of family. We've got the languages of one body. Both of these are helpful to us. We also have the language from the previous chapter of an olive tree, which may help some of us more than others as well. We have a duty to look after each other. Chapter 15. We'll skip over there for a moment. We'll come back. We'll look at this a little bit more. Oh, wow. No, we won't. Romans 15. Oh, there is so much good stuff. (laughs) Romans 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Boom. We have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. All of us here have strength. All of us here have weaknesses. Let us not judge someone else's weaknesses. Let us not judge those who sin differently to us. Let us not judge those who struggle with things that we don't struggle with. They are part of this same body. Um, Steve, can you show the slide? Um, so, I think, no, no, you just ruined my big moment. Steve, it's, it's tough, isn't it? Being on, on slides, like, I know, it was my fault. Um, can you show the one with the graph, the first one with the graph, with me and Julius Maddox? Um, so, I think the most of a bench pressed is 80 kilos. Julius Maddox holds the world record, 350 kilos. So I can't even currently bench press 80, um, and he can bench press 350. I did. Uh, I, look, oh, I looked it up, and the, the weight of the Earth. Um, if you go to the next slide, Steve. So this is um, the weight of the Earth is that one. Um, so six times 10 to the power of 24, and I figure he has the whole world in his hands. So if God has the whole world in his hands, he can surely bench press the whole world, right? So that's what I can bench press, what Julius Maddox can bench press, and that's what God can bench press right there. You can't even see the line for myself or Julius. Like, it's nothing there. There are so many times that we compare ourselves with ourselves. We're told in Scripture that when we compare ourselves with ourselves, we are not, does anyone know what it is? We're not wise, When we compare ourselves with ourselves, we're missing the whole point. I can compare myself with someone much stronger than myself, but still we both absolutely pale in comparison to God. We are to compare ourselves with Jesus, if we want to compare ourselves with anyone, and see his magnificence. He stooped down further than anyone else has ever stooped down in order to rescue us in order to meet us where we're at. He showed mercy to us as the king of the whole earth who came down to meet us where we're at. Anytime that we feel like it's a big deal for me to bear the weaknesses of this person without strength, let's get some perspective on two things. What Jesus has done for us, but also the way that he's empowered us to be able to help others. There's heaps of applications for this. One, we're told not to 
argue over disputed matters. So there'll be different convictions in this room around alcohol, around tattoos, around movies. We're not to argue around that stuff. Different people have different convictions. The whole previous chapter is about food sacrificed to idols. I strongly encourage you to read Romans chapter 14. In fact, I believe it might even be tomorrow in our reading plan. But you can read it anytime. It is an amazing chapter. And it needs some contextualization because it's talking about something that doesn't make sense to our current worldview. But this was a big deal for them. And he's basically saying, well, there's some strong language in there. Like verse 15 of chapter 14. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. If they're hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. He then ramps it up massively. He's gone from their hurt to do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. I may have just opened a can of worms that I don't have time to address. But an example here could be that if a new Christian who has struggled with alcohol for a long time sees someone who's mature in the faith in their eyes, drinking, they may assume that it is fine for them to drink having a different concept of what that's going to mean. There's more that needs to be unpacked around that, but it's just that we actually care more about someone else's well-being and their welfare and what's going to help them than us. And things like movies, all these sorts of things, like we want to be thinking about how we can help the young people, how we can help others in our midst and not doing what pleases ourselves. Verse 2 of chapter 15. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction. So that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. I feel a blessing coming on. Verse 5. Feel free to hold your hands out. Now... May the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Verse 7, Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. I'm just scanning through the rest of what I wanted to share to see if there's anything that I really absolutely have to share. Um, when it comes to... So I mentioned one thing. So it, it's worthwhile considering others in our approach to some of those disputable things um, like your approach to alcohol, your approach to movies, tattoos, whatever. Probably more movies than um, alcohol. But... Maybe you're better at regulating your emotions than someone else. 
Maybe you're better expressing yourself than someone else. Maybe you're less passive-aggressive. Um, maybe gambling's not an issue for you. Maybe you've never been tempted by pornography. Maybe you have no issues with gluttony or envy or gossip or laziness or workaholism or judgmentalism or fear of people. But chances are you probably have struggled with one or more from that list. Just because you find it easy to resist a certain temptation doesn't mean others do. Christ stooped way further in showing mercy to you than you will ever stoop in showing mercy to somebody else. We do need to be careful that we don't follow someone else into their sin. We do need to be careful of that. But I think often we're too careful around that and we don't actually just sit with someone in their brokenness and in their struggle and help them to not feel judged. It is on us to do these things. <laughs> Speaking of this slide, Steve, can you please show the final one? Roman's just a question together with someone else nearby. My question for you is, what immediate application is there for you in not pleasing yourself, but rather bearing with the weaknesses of those without strength? And how can you continue to keep this front and center over the coming week?